The Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 6, and this is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight." Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. The New Testament reading is Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. And when the Apostle Paul found himself in the city of Athens, a city that is described as full of idols, and he was speaking before the Areopagus, he uh, proclaimed the same truth uh, that Isaiah proclaimed to the Israelites that we heard from Isaiah, and that is that the Lord, uh, unlike the idols of, uh, of men, uh, the Lord, the true God, does not uh, live in temples made by hand. So I, uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by any or by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 66 for our sermon text this morning. Last week in our study of Isaiah, in the passage immediately preceding this one, Isaiah gave us a feast for our souls as he uh, presented to us through his prophecy uh, the glories of the coming new age of the new heavens and the new earth. He gave us a a picture of heaven as a place of everlasting joy, uh, the fullness of life, 
uh, perfect communion with God and an all-encompassing, all-encompassing peace. And uh, this hope of heaven has been secured for us uh, by the Son of God, by Jesus Christ, by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And God's promise in the gospel is that whoever comes to Jesus by faith in him will receive this promise, this hope that one day every believer in Jesus Christ will be brought to this place of eternal rest, eternal blessedness. And so this uh, promise of heaven is uh, offered to all, all uh, who come to him in faith in Christ. And God wants the hearts of his people uh, now, today, as we, as we live in this uh, fallen world, he wants our hearts to be filled with this hope of glory. He wants us to uh, walk by faith, knowing that this is our true home and this, this promised heaven, uh, not this world. But, having said that, uh, because we are sinners, and therefore because our hearts are deceitful above all else, uh, the Lord wants us to be clear that this promise of heaven is not for everyone who merely thinks that it belongs to them, but rather this promise of the coming glory is for those who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have come to God by faith in his son Jesus. And those who, out of that faith in Jesus Christ, worship God in truth in this life. Uh, Those who do not truly worship God in this world will not be with the Lord in the world to come. And so this passage, immediately following this, uh, this wonderful picture of heaven, in this passage, Isaiah now uh, turns our attention uh, to worship. Uh, what is true worship? And that is the theme of this passage. And specifically, uh, Isaiah is dealing with true worship versus false worship. And there are two lessons that I want us to take from this passage this morning. The first is this, that the Lord pronounces judgment against those who worship him falsely. And the second lesson is that the Lord promises salvation for those who worship him truly. And so judgment against false worshipers, salvation for true worshipers. So first, the Lord pronounces judgment against false worshipers. This passage, it it begins with a bang. Uh, The Lord, in verse 1, he declares his divine majesty, his divine greatness. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So the Lord is the sovereign king over all creation. He is God. And therefore, heaven itself is the throne of this king. Uh, The earth is his footstool. Um, To put this in theological language, because God is infinite in being, he is omnipresent. And so on the one hand, God is so limitless in his being, because he is infinite, the entire creation, the entire universe, as big as it is, cannot possibly contain the full being of God. But on the other hand, God is, at the same time, he is fully present, all of God is fully present at every point in his creation. And so God is everywhere, and yet everywhere cannot contain him. And this separates God from all other kings and rulers, be they human kings or the the gods of the peoples of the nations. 
the true God. He is absolutely transcendence in being and power over all that he has made. All of that is implied in what the Lord declares in this first verse. He also goes on to declare that he is the sovereign creator of all things. He says in verse 2, all these things, that is everything in heaven and earth, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now why does the Lord declare these things uh, through Isaiah the prophet? Why does he tell the Israelites here these truths about who he is, his transcendence, and his sovereignty over all creation? Well, he does that because of this. The Israelites, in their hearts and minds, they had begun to diminish or to limit uh, the presence or the power of God. And they did this by thinking that the Lord was no, was no different from the idols and the gods of the nations that surrounded them. Uh, just as the pagan deities were confined to and limited to their local temples, so the Israelites began to think of and to worship the Lord as though he also was somehow confined uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that is why, uh, you know, that is what is behind uh, the question that the Lord asks the Israelites in verse 1. He says, What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? He's saying to the people of Israel, you Israelites, do you, do you not know that my true temple is creation itself? That my dwelling place uh, fills all of creation. How can you think that you can build a temple for me that would somehow contain me where I would uh, be where uh, I would be limited to that to that place? Now, to be sure, God did promise the Israelites that he would dwell with them in a special way in the temple that they would build for him. And so God did promise that in a, in a special way, his presence would be among his people in that temple in Jerusalem. But the problem is the Israelites took that promise and they twisted it. They perverted it into something quite different. They began to think that since God dwelt in the temple, therefore he was limited in some way and therefore he would be more subject to their control. And so uh, they're thinking one way, to, one way to, uh, to, to make this clearer is to compare how the Israelites uh, were thinking about God in Isaiah's day versus how the Israelites um, thought about God in the days of Samuel. Uh, actually, it's very similar. You remember in, in the days of Samuel the judge when the Israelites were at war with the Philistines? Um, they took the ark of God into battle with them against the Philistines. And they did this because they thought wrongly that because God had promised that he would dwell above the cherubim on the ark, on, on top of the ark of the covenant, that therefore, if they took the ark of the covenant with them into battle, that therefore the, the presence of God, the power of God would be uh, at their disposal in order to defeat the Philistines. They thought that they could guarantee God's presence, their blessing or his blessing in the battle if they had the Ark of the Covenant with them, because that's where God said that he would dwell. And so the Ark and their thinking became kind of a magic charm by which they could harness this divine power. And of course, you know how all that ended. It ended in a total debacle for the Israelites. Uh, they were defeated by the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken, captured, or was captured by their enemies. And this is the fundamental 
way that the Israelites were approaching God in Isaiah's day, that he was somehow confined to the temple and therefore he would be in some way under their control. But this idea that God is somehow inseparable from something, uh, be it the Ark of the Covenant or the temple, uh, this is really an idolatrous idea. Uh, It is the same idea that the Apostle Paul spoke against in Athens uh, before the Areopagus uh, when he said the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. He was arguing against idolatry, the idolatry that he saw in Athens. And it was this idea that God could be contained in the temple or a God could be contained in the temple. And so the Israelites, even though they had the temple in Jerusalem, where God promised to dwell in their midst, nevertheless, they twisted that into this very pagan notion that God was bound to the temple and therefore somehow subject to their control. And this is the same idolatrous mindset that the Lord goes on to condemn in this prophecy in verse 3. The Israelites, from outward appearances, they were doing everything properly in their worship. Externally, they were truly worshiping the Lord. Uh, They were bringing to the Lord all the sacrifices that he commanded, oxen and lambs and grain and frankincense and all of that. But because they were doing all of this sacrificing and worshiping with the wrong motives, the Lord condemns their worship as being no better than had they been offering to God completely pagan sacrifices. And so the Lord says, it is as though you are offering humans for sacrifice. In your worship of me, it is as though you are bringing me unclean animals, the blood of pigs. It is as though you are blessing an idol. Just as the pagans worshiped their idols with the idea that if they only gave their gods the sacrifices that they demanded, then the gods would give them the blessings that they desired. So the Israelites, in the same way, They worshiped the God with the idea that if they only did what God commanded in their worship, therefore God must give them what they desired. And so their hearts were completely, uh, they were motivated by all the wrong reasons to worship God, even though outwardly they were worshiping him correctly. But this mindset of giving to God or a God, um, And therefore, demanding that he give what you want in return, this is a pagan, idolatrous mindset. It is not devotion and service and love to God uh, because of what he has done for us by his grace, but rather it is more like a contractual agreement. I give to you the sacrifices you demand, and you will give me the blessings I want. And so then this idolatrous idea involves the manipulation or the control of the gods. Uh, Give them what they want, and they will give you what they desire. And it was with that same spirit of idolatry that the Israelites were worshiping uh, the Lord. And because these false worshipers, because they so rejected the knowledge of God, because they refused to truly know him and worship him from the heart properly, they therefore, really, they hated God, and they hated those who loved God. In verse 5, Uh, Isaiah says this, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. 
the true worshipers of God in Isaiah's day, they rejoiced in the Lord. And it was that joy that the unbelieving Israelites mocked. They said to the true worshipers, you rejoice in God, do you? You rejoice in the Lord? Well, let's see how joyful you are when we cast you out, when we excommunicate you from the worship and the people of God. Now, one thing that the religious hypocrite cannot tolerate is the presence of someone who truly knows the Lord, who loves the Lord, who, who worships God. And that's because the genuine believer with his true faith, with his true joy, he exposes the religious hypocrite for the fraud that he is. And this is, this is why the Pharisees had such hatred in their hearts towards Jesus, because they recognized in Jesus that here was a man who was unlike any other person they had ever known in their whole lives, that here was a man who was genuinely holy, that here was a man who truly knew the Lord. He trusted in God. He served God. He worshiped God. He rejoiced in the Lord. Here was a true man of God. And that testified to the hearts of the Pharisees. It testified to others the truth that their own religion their own piety was a sham. It was a fraud. And so, of course, they had to destroy Jesus. And that same kind of thing is happening here. The false worshipers are persecuting those who truly rejoice in the Lord because they expose their own hypocrisy. The Lord says at the end of verse 5 that those wicked Israelites who cast out true believers that they would be put to shame. And then elsewhere in this passage, the Lord declares the judgments, the condemnation that he is going to bring upon those who did not know him, who worshiped him falsely. At the end of verse three, the Lord says, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. And then immediately after that, in verse four comes the judgment. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. I will bring their fears upon them. Everything that these false worshipers dreaded, the fears that drove them to worship God in this idolatrous way, to, to rescue them from their fears, all of this would come to pass. The Lord would bring their worst fears upon them. And in verse 6, the Lord says, The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And so here, the coming judgment of God against the false worshipers, it is pictured as taking place in the temple, the very place where those false worshipers so offended the Lord with their hypocrisy and their idolatrous worship. And so through Isaiah, then, the Lord pronounces this judgment against those who worshiped him falsely. And Isaiah also shows us at a deeper level what was the fundamental problem with those who worshiped him falsely? Look at verse four. He says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. The false worship and the evil doings of, of those who, who committed these things... Uh, their worship was false because it proceeded from a heart that was false. The Lord called to them, but they would not answer. He spoke to them, but they would not listen. 
The Lord, through his prophet, through other prophets, through his word, he, he called out to his people, but they refused to hear him. And what Isaiah is describing here is the heart of unbelief, the unbelieving hearts that does not respond with faith to the word of God. This is a heart that is spiritually dead, a heart that because it is spiritually dead, it is utterly incapable of responding uh, to God's word. It is a false heart. And because of this fundamental unbelief, because of this heart that was dead in sins and trespasses, the Israelites then did what only comes naturally to those who are spiritually dead, to those who have a false heart, and that is they turned the worship of God into idolatry, and they did what was evil in God's sight. And so a false heart is what produced the false worship. And so the Lord pronounces judgment against these false worshipers. Uh, the second lesson in this passage is that the Lord promises salvation for true worshipers. So if the false worshipers, if it was at, because they had a false heart, then the converse would be true that those who worship the Lord truly did so because they had a true heart, a heart that responded to God, that believed in his word, that trusted in the Lord. And that is the heart that Isaiah describes for us in this passage. Uh, look at verse 2. Isaiah declares this wonderful promise of God to his people. He says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Uh, the Lord says, This is the one that I will look to. And he says this in the context of uh, bringing up this idea that the Israelites could not build him a temple that would contain him. And so it's as if the Lord is saying to his people, even if you built the most splendid and glorious and magnificent structure on the face of the earth, I would not look down from heaven to admire it and to admire your craftsmanship, but I would look down from heaven to look upon the one who is humble and contrite in heart. It's upon him that my eyes would, would look upon Earlier in Isaiah, the Lord made a very uh, similar promise uh, to his people. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Again, here the Lord declares uh, in this verse uh, his greatness, that heaven and earth cannot contain him, that he is so infinite in being that he not only fills all things, but nothing can, can actually hold him. He says he inhabits eternity. And yet at the same time, the same God who is infinite in being, he says he does dwell somewhere. He dwells with the one who is contrite, who has a contrite and lowly spirit. And so... God dwells with the humble and contrite. He dwells with them with the fullness of his gracious and life-giving presence. And in our prophecy, uh, it is with his love and grace and favor that he looks upon the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be humble and contrite in spirit? Well, part of what it means is to hear the word of God and to believe it. As, as Isaiah puts it, he who trembles at my word. Now, this is a good 
spiritual barometer uh, to ascertain, to test the condition of our own hearts. How do I respond to the word of God? And it's not just a question, do you believe in the truthfulness of the scripture? It's not just do you believe in your mind of the truth of what God has revealed in his word, but do you genuinely seek to obey what he commands? When you hear God's commandments in his word, are you sincerely desiring to obey those commandments? Do the warnings of God give you a sober sense of the awful reality of the wrath of God, of his judgment? Do the promises of God fill your hearts with comfort and hope and joy? Uh, That's what it means to tremble at God's word, not just to believe it in your mind, but that your heart responds appropriately to each part of the word of God. As for the humble, uh, specifically, um, in a social sense, the humble among the, the people of Israel, the humble were those who were at the lowest part of society. They were the downtrodden. They had no power. They had no influence. They were the humble or the poor. Spiritually, the humble then is the one who recognizes that before God, he is nothing. That he occupies the lowest place before Almighty God. To be humble means to acknowledge that you are just a creature. That God is your creator. That you are just a servant. That God is your master. And the word for contrite is a word that's actually used in other places of Scripture to describe a physical disability or a lameness. This is the only place where this word is actually used to describe a spiritual condition. Uh, But, uh, for example, Mephibosheth, uh, back in 2 Samuel, uh, the same word applies to him. Not that he was contrite in heart, but that he was physically lame, he was disabled. And so what contrite means, and to be contrite in spirit, what that means is that you recognize your utter disability before God, that you are incapable of doing anything good for God or giving anything worthy to God. It means that you recognize that because you are completely unable before the Lord to do anything spiritually worthy, that any good that you have or any good that you do comes from the hand of the Lord. That's what it means to be contrite in spirit. And when we consider this description of those whom God looks upon, that they are humble and contrite in spirit, when we consider this in the light of what we have already seen, what God has proclaimed against those who are false worshipers, that character of the humble and contrite really becomes clearer to us. Because remember, what was at the heart of the false worship, what was at the heart of that was an idolatrous mindset that sought to control or to manipulate God into giving them the blessings that they wanted. And so in their worship, these false worshipers believed that they were bringing to God something that he needed from them, something that he wanted from them, and that was their rituals and their sacrifices. They thought that they were bringing these to God uh, as though he was in need of them. And then they thought that by doing so, they would obtain God's blessing and salvation because they had brought them these sacrifices or given him this worship. But compare that to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. He knows that he has absolutely nothing that he can bring to God. 
He knows that God doesn't want the blood of bulls and goats. He knows that God does not need a food offering. He knows that there is nothing that he can truly give to God that God is is in need of. He knows that he is spiritually incapable of doing anything worthy of God. He knows that he is spiritually impoverished, and so he he recognizes that there is nothing that he can give to God, but that he can only receive from God his blessing and his favor. And so it's a radically different way of approaching God, the humble and the contrite versus these proud and arrogant false worshipers. And so for that reason, the humble and contrite acknowledges and recognizes something that so many people don't understand, and that is that salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Any favor, any blessing, any good thing that God gives to you and me is a gift, a gift of his grace. And that is especially true when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, to everlasting life. It is a gift. It is not a reward for those who have obeyed, who have obeyed God enough to earn it. It is not a reward for those who have been good enough Uh, to deserve it. It is not a reward for those who have uh, offered enough sacrifices to receive salvation as their wages, but it is a gift. It is only received by those who humble themselves and receive it from the hand of God freely. Isaiah describes in this passage for us a kind of idolatrous mindset and worshiping God. And, and, and what he shows us is, is that idolatry and this whole understanding behind it, that this is a very subtle and insidious thing. Uh, you don't have to uh, make a golden calf and bow down to it in order uh, to be caught up with idolatry. But it's much more subtle than that. Because if you notice, the Israelites... Outwardly, they were doing everything correctly in their worship. They were bringing all the right sacrifices. But they twisted that in their minds into thinking that somehow they were giving to God in order that on the basis of that, God would give to them what they wanted. And as Christians today, we can also twist the true worship of God into a kind of idol worship. We can begin to think this way. If I live as a good Christian, if I uh, read my Bible, if I uh, do what Christians are supposed to do, if I come to church, if I avoid uh, the really scandalous sins, if I do that, if I'm a good Christian, then God is obligated. He must do for me what I want, and that is to save me. And in our sin and self-deceit, we can begin to slip into this kind of idolatrous way of approaching God. I will give him what he wants from me, my Christianity, my religion, and because he is God and he saves, he must give me what I want, which is salvation. Again, this idea of a contract with God, of getting him to do what you want by giving him what you think he wants, this is the way that idol worshipers worship their idols. But this is not the message of the gospel. This is not... The message that God has given us in his word, but the message of the gospel is this, that first of all, because you are a sinner, the only thing that you deserve from God is condemnation and wrath. That is the only thing that you and I deserve and merit from God, his judgment. 
And because you are spiritually dead in your sins, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do for God. There is nothing that you can give to God that will atone for your sins, that will cause him to forgive you and to shine his favor upon you. As a sinner, you are helpless and hopeless before a holy God. Unless God intervenes, you must be condemned and lost forever. That is really the the truth behind the gospel. That is our need. That we cannot do anything for God to earn his grace and salvation. But God has done something wonderful. Because of who he is. Because he is a God of mercy, of love and compassion. He has done the one thing that we never would have expected. Out of his love for us, out of his love for sinners, he has given the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you and I have done, but because of what Jesus has done, his obedience, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. It is because of that then that God offers to any who come to him. Well, he offers to all and he gives to any who come to him salvation and eternal life. And so salvation in Jesus Christ is a pure gift. Again, this is something that so many people don't understand is that Christianity is not about being good or being a good person or being a religious person in order to have this hope of heaven, but it is about what God has done for us freely as a gift. He has saved us. It is a gift. You cannot earn it. You, cannot des- you do not deserve it, but you can have this gift of salvation. And that is by humble- humbling yourself, acknowledging your sin, Recognizing your need, your helplessness, and with an empty hand reaching out to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And God promises you will receive the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Isaiah describes for us the one who has a true heart. He is humble and contrite in spirit and Although Isaiah doesn't describe for us what flows from that true heart, we know that what comes from a true heart is true worship, is true worship. And first of all, true worship that comes from a true heart is believing. Uh, The true worship, true worshiper believes all that God has spoken. He trembles at the word of God. Uh, The confession of faith puts it this way. Hearing the word of God is yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. And so true worship is believing God's word. Secondly, true worship is also thankful. As a Christian, you come to worship God not because he demands this worship so that he can reward you with his blessing. But you come to worship God. You come here this morning to worship God because already he has given you grace and Salvation, And so true worship is an expression of gratitude to God for what he has done for us. True worship is joyful. It was the joy of the believing Israelites that caused the unbelieving Israelites to persecute them and despise them. But they could not help but rejoice at the Lord. And the more that you absorb into your heart the truth of what God has done for you in Christ... The more that these, uh, this, this gospel promise 
of eternal life freely given to you in Jesus Christ, the more that that is absorbed into your own heart, the more that you will you also will rejoice in the Lord. And our worship should be joyful. It should be joyful because of what God has done for us. Uh, true worship is devotional. Uh, what, am I mean, what I mean by that is that true worship is an expression of the love that we have for God in our hearts because of what he has done for us in Christ, the grace that he has shown us in Christ. Again, this perhaps is one thing that distinguishes most clearly idol worship from true worship, the true worship of God. An idol worshiper may um, serve his God. An idol worshiper may respect his God. Uh, he may fear his God, but I don't think an idol worshiper can truly love his God. But as one who belongs to the true God by faith, you have the greatest reason to love him, and that is because he first loved you. And that love of God with which he first loved us, this is on display for us this morning here in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Here is Christ given for us. Here is Christ crucified for us. This is how much God has loved you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that through him we might have eternal life. He has loved us with a divine love from all eternity. He has loved us first, and therefore we love him, and we show that love by devoting ourselves to him in our service and in our worship. Let's pray.